0: How many people remember this story or heard of it? I hope everyone in this room. <laughs> All right, no, we, we, Jay's the only one. Everyone go back to school. <laughs> Emma, thank you. Thank you. So you probably heard it when you were fourth or fifth grade, maybe. I'm not sure when they're teaching the, the crossing of the Delaware, I actually grew up around this area uh, when we recently visited we stayed near Delaware Crossing there's there's monuments there's tours you can take there's paintings and there's plays maybe you acted in the in the crossing when you got to be George Washington standing out front of course it didn't happen like those thoughts that were taking place I I added those myself but um let me ask you another So this was an act that changed, really, history, right? Changed our nation. Changed the course of the uh, Revolutionary War. It's pretty significant. How many people here saw that? Okay. If you did, we'll have another conversation afterwards. How many people know anyone that saw that? How do we know it's true? How do we know it's true? It was really interesting. When I, I, I dug into this, I wanted to pick an event that everyone's familiar with. And, and when I dug into this, it actually took me a little bit, as much as research you could do on Google or Wikipedia or whatever it is, it, it took me a while to figure out where they got the sources from. What, what were the sources behind this event that everyone knows about? There's paintings, you know, all this art and history and all of these things. And it took me a while to find out that there were some sources, But I had to research that. They came from officers' diaries. A lot of officers' diaries. I think there's one real famous one called the Bostwick or something. Don't quote me on that. However, in the research of it, I found something really fascinating. This is going to blow your minds. Listen to this. And this was under facts of the crossing. The contemporary accounts of the crossing were written by men who were there, usually mentioned the terrible weather, they mentioned the snowstorm, and they mentioned the condition of the men. However, none of them discuss the actual movement of the men and boats across the river. Really? There's a, there's a painting. So you're trying to tell me that this historical act was never really recorded, but yet we believe it's true. We see the effects of it, right? We, when I wouldn't be here, we'd be having tea and crumpets right about now, maybe, or something, but we, we see the effects of it. We know that there were eyewitnesses. We know that people were there. They, they talk about the events leading up to the act. They talk about the weather, but they don't actually talk about the act themselves. Have you ever, have you ever asked yourself, how can I know what I believe is true? How many people have ever doubted their faith at times. It's okay. Right? You wonder, you sometimes you go home, you know, how, how do I know that what I believe actually happened, that what I believe is an actual historical fact? You know, right now there are so many Christians that are leaving the faith. They are deconstructing. They are challenging the beliefs of Christianity, and it's good to investigate. You need to come to a conclusion on your own, and you need to make your faith your own, but they are beginning to step away from historical Christianity. Matter of fact, many of them say that Christianity is anti-intellectual, that it is not reasonable, and it is easily disproved. These are some of the things that people are saying. Along with that, there is a There's a blanket distrust in institutions like the church. How can you and I be absolutely sure and confident in what we believe? I have three goals for the sermon. One of them is to reassure you of your faith. It's to give you confidence in what we believe. That what we believe is a historical reality and believing in this truth changes your life for all eternity. Second, if you're here today or if you're watching online and and you're not a Christian and you're thinking about this, I hope that this really helps you see that we have a faith that's not based on reason, but it's a reasonable faith. God doesn't want you to blindly leap out there without giving us evidence. And then thirdly, I want you to be able to pour out of these doors and be so confident in the truth of the gospel and be prepared to discuss this with people who are searching. So we're going to dive right into it. Ultimately, we're going to talk about three trusts and then one major trust at the end. So the first one is you can trust in Jesus' death. Verses 31 through 37. And you'll see how John breaks this down. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not "'Remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that day, that Sabbath was a high Sabbath day. "'They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. "'So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified with Jesus. "'Coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs.' One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. To spread the news of her father's death, one of Mr. Barrington's children took to social media to write a tribute to her father. She wrote this, Rest in peace, Daddy. I will never stop thinking about you. Why is life so unfair? Why you? You were going to be a grandfather. And you still had your whole life ahead of you. I love you. We love you. We will never forget you. The funeral, which was on a weekend near the city of Liege, was attended by many friends and family members honoring Mr. Burton, and they were all dressed in black. As they awaited for the ceremony to begin they were met with a surprise. It was a helicopter. The helicopter landed, and guess who stepped out of it? You guessed it, Mr. Burton. You see, David Burton, 45, and his wife and children decided to prank friends and family, to find out what they really thought about him because he was feeling unappreciated by his family members. he stepped. It was videoed on TikTok by one of the attendees. Mr. Burton stepped out of the helicopter alongside a camera crew and then was greeted by all of his mourners. I think he's dead now after he pulled a stunt like that. And we're not going to get into the absolute utter selfishness of this man and why he did something like that. But it, it just goes to show you that things sometimes are not what they appear to be, right? Things are really hard to believe, especially now with AI, social media. We can post things and we can say things and we're not sure of the veracity of that truth. And people take to the internet And they tried to disprove what? This right here. It's all over the place. Look up, why is Christianity not true? Jesus never really died. As a matter of fact, John is writing these things for a very particular reason. There was a belief in John's time called Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed that Jesus was not really a human, that he was more spirit and that he really didn't die on the cross. John disproves all of that. And John also wants you and I to see exactly what he sees and what he experiences. But it is much, much more than just the physical death of Jesus Christ. It is what his death means for us. Look at what John does here, and this is called a critical incident report. And I I just want to break this down for you, because we sometimes come to the Bible and we're we, we don't look at it always like this historical, evidential document, and we have to. Your faith has to rest in history, in reality, and it needs to be evidential. And that's what God wants you to see here, that there is eyewitness testimony to this event. And John is writing it like it is what we used to call, in, when I worked in corrections, a critical incident report. This is John's critical incident report. And he answers all the interrogative questions that need to be answered, doesn't he? He begins with the specific day and the specific day leads to the reason why Jesus needed to be taken down. So this was not the Roman idea. As a matter of fact, Rome used to like to leave the criminals hanging there. Why? So they could be an example to everyone that walked by. But because of the law, because specifically of this law, they needed to take him off of the cross. So this was a, this was a biblical Jewish law in which they needed to follow, so they approached Pilate, and they asked him for the body. So John gives the reasons why. He gives the who, what, where, when, and how. Not only that, John gives expert opinion. Who's the expert opinion in here? It's not John. It's actually the Roman soldiers. When you do a job over and over and over again, don't you get pretty good at it? Hopefully, right? If not, maybe that's not the job for you. Maybe you need to find a new line of work. But if you do something over and over and over again, usually you get, you know, you become an expert in something. You know, we have our musicians up here; they they become proficient in what they do. Uh, I I cook salmon. It's the only thing that I can cook, right? But but I've cooked it for years now, and I know, you know, you get a certain piece, you put it on a, you put it on a certain type, a certain range of heat, you put it in the foil bag. And you cook it for 12 minutes and it is, it's is—it's absolutely out of this world. But it's the only thing I can cook. So i become an expert at salmon cooking. Do you know what these guys were an expert at? Death. They were an expert at death. They knew exactly when someone was dead. And they knew what they needed to do in order to make that happen. So we spoke about it. Every victim would have to lift up their legs. They would have to stretch like this in order to get a breath, because if not, asphyxiation would happen. So, in order for that not them not to breathe, they would come and they would break their legs. It's terrible, but that's how they made sure that they were finished off. They come to Jesus, and guess what? He's already dead. They verify that, and they poke him with a spear. It's hard to say whether or not they poke him right before he dies or right at, after his death. But the, the, the guard was there to verify that Jesus is actually dead. And then John says something very, very interesting after this. He says, hey, look, what I'm telling you is true. You can believe me. When I say to you that, look, I was an eyewitness to the death of Jesus Christ. I saw him physically die, and this is going to mean something later on. These guys verified his death, and you can believe that he died, but also you can believe what that death means. The interesting thing about the breaking of the legs. I don't believe that it comes from the psalm passage. A lot of people think it comes from the psalm passage, and it may be an allusion to that. But John mentions the day, and it's the day of this passion, which is the day before the Passover. That's why it's called a high Sabbath. And here is this passage in Numbers. And Jesus is considered what? He's considered the Passover lamb, isn't he? And what does it say about eating the Passover? They might not not leave any of it until the morning or break any of its bones. They must observe the Passover according to all of its statutes. This is why I believe Jesus' bones are not broken. And John is saying much, much more than just believing in the physicality of his death, isn't he? What is he saying? He's saying that this person who died was more than just an ordinary man. That God programmed and planned this death exactly the way that it is occurring. And that this death, when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you believe in Jesus Christ, means life for you. He wants you to believe that truth. He wants you to take it as your own. He wants you to do What he is saying here, and he wants you to look upon Jesus, and he wants you to look upon him not like you are looking upon an ordinary man on the cross, but look upon him as the Passover lamb, the sacrifice for your sins, the Son of God, who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's how he wants you to see Jesus. That's how he wants you to see his death. That's what he wants you to believe. Not just that he died, but he died for a purpose, and he died for you and me. This description of looking upon whom they pierced is the same description of Jesus returning in Revelation, isn't it? It's in Zechariah, it's in Revelation as well. We need to see Jesus as he is right now. So that when, we, when he comes later, we're not judged by the ones who did not look upon him for salvation. We're not judged like those individuals. John wants you to be confident. He's like talking to a friend, isn't he? Hey, this is, this is what I saw. You can believe this. You can take this truth, you can apply it, and you can go and you can tell those who don't believe it, it's true. We have a very reasonable faith. We have a faith that is based on eyewitness evidence. And we have a faith that when people look upon Christ and see him like John saw him, they're changed. And we begin to see that in the next part. The second trust is you can trust in his burial. Verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, "...that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted permission, so he came and took took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds of weight. So they took the body, Jesus, and bound bound it in linen linen wrappings with the spices as as is the burial custom of the Jews." Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Before I jump into this passage, there's something that happens in Mark that is not mentioned here. Mark 15, through 45 says this. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave his body to Joseph. Jesus' death is confirmed on so many different levels. It's confirmed by John. It's confirmed by the centurion. And then Pilate also, wants to make sure Jesus is dead. So, John, God, everyone wants us to know guess what? Jesus is absolutely dead. He is not alive whatsoever. How many people are planning their funeral? Anyone? Kind of curious. No, not yet. Not there yet. Brian? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. John? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think about my funeral and what I want at it. Sarah doesn't like when I talk about it. day, doesn't like when I talk about it. I'm not sure I'm going to have a huge celebration. You know, I think that I want some puns involved in my funeral, you know. Uh, but people plan out their funerals, don't they? You know, I, I've done many funerals where the whole funeral service was planned out. Well, there's, there's a lot of people that actually want to go out with a bang these days. I'm not quite sure if you heard of this. But uh, it, there was a guy named Gordon Bergen, he was an ordained minister, whose funeral arrangements were actually part of an Independence Day celebration. To delight the crowd gathered for the show at the, at the Marino in St. Croix, Minnesota, Bergen's ashes traveled several hundred feet into the air and then exploded in a fiery display of post-mortem pyrotechnics. I'm not sure I'd want any of that dust falling on me afterwards, but um, they said, Far from being an unusual event, the president of the Pyrotechnics Guild International reports that requests for such displays has actually increased significantly over the last decade. As a matter of fact, funeral planning is beginning to challenge wedding planning. Tributes is a company that provides elaborate life celebrations for the dearly departed and charges a mere $200,000 for their services sometimes. These planners provide, they, they provide help in securing speakers, catering, creating videos, building appropriate sets for the funeral, and supplying just about any creative element you can imagine. One guy had an ice cream truck lead his funeral procession, because he was an ice cream man. Another person is wanting their, their, their casket to ascend skyward. They say all of this allows us to have more of an afterlife. More of an afterlife. Jesus himself on earth didn't map out his funeral arrangements, did he? God did. And it's very interesting because there is a a celebration that takes place. It's not... It's not like fireworks. It's not as blatant. It's subtle. But it speaks to something much, much greater. You see, why do we have celebrations like that? And I understand. Just like the lady said, we want to have more of an afterlife. We want the good times to continue, don't we? Burying someone represents something that is Final to us. As a matter of fact, you it's kind of interesting the way John changes the way he's referring to Jesus. He doesn't call him Jesus anymore. What does he say? The body of Jesus. The shell of who we used to be. Jesus is gone. Jesus has died. But something has changed. Something has changed. And the life of Jesus Christ, actually, the death of Jesus Christ, is already bearing fruit. And it's bearing fruit in the lives of two individuals. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. I love this passage because we could just skip right over what's happening here. But there's a big transition. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are just an example of what is to come. Notice what John says about these two. He points out something very important. He's, He's not actually putting them down, but he's stating something. Who were they? They were secret disciples. Both of them were. Joseph of Arimathea was. Now we know Joseph of Arimathea says in another passage that he didn't go along with wanting to kill Jesus, but he, he was definitely a secret disciple. During the life of Christ, Joseph did not let it be known that he followed Jesus. And Nicodemus was the same way. But now the death of Christ, they say, no more. No more am I going to let Jesus, be dishonored. No more am I going to be afraid of what man can do to me. The death of Christ should do to us what it did to these two individuals. We say, we're going to come out of the houses. We're not going to be secret disciples anymore. We're not going to cower in the face of man We're going to let it be known that Jesus is Lord. We're going to let it be known that we are followers of him. Are you a secret disciple? Are you more afraid of what people are going to think about you then you love Jesus Christ? Are you afraid to go out and publicly pronounce that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and Jesus Christ rose again? John is preparing us for something. John is preparing us for the result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and its impact on individuals. The death of Jesus Christ should change everything about us. The death of Jesus Christ should give us the courage to face whatever this world may throw at us. Do you know why? Because the death of Jesus Christ means our everlasting life. And we don't need to be afraid of what they can do to us. Because what is happening to Jesus and the transition that is taking place here in this passage is the same thing that is going to happen to us. Death is not the end for you and me. It's actually just the beginning. It is just the beginning. Therefore, why fear what man can do to you? Why be afraid of what man can do to you or this world can do to you? Why live for this world? These two said no more. And in that we begin to see exactly what is happening to Jesus and exactly what is going to happen to us. Notice the change in how his body is now being treated. Is it being beaten? Is it is he being mocked? Is he being dishonored? Is he being shamed? Is he being tortured? Is he being disrespected? No. There's a change, isn't there? They're treating Jesus with care. They are treating Jesus with respect. And they're treating him with honor. And that is the same thing that is going to happen to us. Death is an end of pain. It's an end of the shame. It's an end of dishonor. It's an end of all of that. And we enter into glory, healing, power, and everlasting life. No longer is Jesus being treated like a common criminal. He's being treated like the king he is. And it just so happens that he's placed in the tomb of a rich man, no longer poor. And it just so happens that, he is, that the tomb is found in a garden, where it all began. And this is where it changes forever. John is going over the second tenet of our faith. He was buried. Matter of fact, if Joseph and Nicodemus were in on some sort of big plot, they didn't do a really good job because why would they bind him all the way up? Why would they follow all of those rituals? Why would they place him in a tomb? John keys in on the wrappings because they prove to be very significant. Later on, which brings us to our third and final point. You can trust in Jesus' resurrection. Verses 1 through 10. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter. And to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter also came entered into the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then entered. He saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own Holmes. It runs like a play-by-play. <laughs> this is exactly what he's doing. He gives a play-by-play of all the events of the first individuals to see the empty tomb. I was recently reading an article about Christian inspirational movies. How many people like Christian inspiration? We all love them, right? We have our favorites. I'm sure I'd ask you to name a few. So these are Christian (laughs) inspirational movies that are based on true stories. And I was reading this article about these inspirational movies. And you know, what I discovered in reading the article is these movies that are based on true stories are not, well, they're not really all true. As a matter of fact, they tend to leave out some very uncomfortable truths about the stories in order to achieve their purpose, which is inspirational, right? So there was a, it's kind of summed up in this exchange between these two characters. And I won't share with you what movies are not all true, but you can look them up because I don't want to I don't want to dash your hopes and make you all sad about these movies. I love them. I like watching them. You know, nothing like a good inspirational movie to get you motivated. It's it summed up in this conversation between these two guys. So imagine if I said this to you. I'm going to say this to you. We're going to test it out. Hey, did you know, did you know that Einstein failed in math? Yeah. You hear about that? Yeah, can you imagine? What does that do for you? Does that make you feel good? Yeah, right? Maybe you're in school. Maybe you're struggling with math, right? Kids are like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to tell my mom, Mom, Einstein failed at math. I'm fine. they are going to be all right, right? It inspires you, right? Because you're like, hey, Einstein was a failure at math. Mom, I'm going to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Einstein failed at math. So the guy says this, hey, do you know Einstein failed at math? And the guy goes, yeah, that's not true at all. And you know what the other guy says? He says, well, well, doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know why it doesn't matter? It inspires people. And that's what we're all about, right? We want to lie to people to inspire them, to make them feel good. And then the guy replies, yeah, well, those, those people who believe that are actually stupid. Do you know why? Because there are actually true stories that inspire people and really happened. Christians. This is the only true story we need to inspire us. If we need anything else, we're not alive. We're dead. Because this is the story that actually gives inspiration to all of our stories. If this hasn't happened, forget about all those stories. This is the true story that inspires us because this is reality. Jesus Christ is actually alive. Jesus Christ right now is seated at the right hand of God, waiting to return. And if that doesn't inspire you, and if it doesn't inspire you that because Jesus' tomb was empty, your tomb can be empty too, I'm not quite sure what's the matter with you. I don't know why we need all the. We should just play the resurrection movie over, over over and over and over and over and over again. That's the movie, that's the story we need to inspire us. And why do we lie about the truths of these other movies? Because the resurrection helps us handle uncomfortable truth, doesn't it? We can be messes in our lives because Jesus Christ forgives us and I know that I'm saved and I'm going to be eternally secure with him in heaven. John tells us a true inspirational story. One that actually happened. And there there's so many different things that he covers in here that we have to see. Number one, Mary. Mary Magdalene plays an absolutely crucial part in the resurrection account. And if you are going to make up a story or make up some sort of legend... That Jesus rose from the dead. During this time period, guess who you're not going to put in there? A woman. Guess who you're not definitely going to put in there? A former prostitute. Because that's who she is. Her being a former prostitute, right? Would you question her credibility? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) You know? But not only that, we're going to see next week just what a role she plays because she's the first one to see the risen Lord. And what a picture of the people that represent his kingdom. And if you hear, you, you hear this in, about Christianity today, that Christianity is oppressive to women and it's patriarchal. They're not reading the Bible because this would never have happened. Women's testimony was not admissible in court. It just wasn't allowed. They they just didn't allow it. So if you're going to fake something, guess what? Choose a guy. Choose, Choose someone respectable in this culture. Jesus elevates the status of women. Christianity elevates the status of women. Paul writes Husbands, treat your wives like Jesus Christ treats the church. That was never said before. Don't let people tell you Christianity is oppressive to women. It's just not true. And this proves it. Mary is not expecting Jesus to be gone. She goes, again, John does the same thing. She goes early in the morning. There's no way she's rolling away that stone. Now, whether she's go, she goes with people, there's other accounts that have her going later on. It, it, none of that at this point matters. All we know is that she does not peek into the tomb. She actually just sees the stone and then goes back and tells them. And whether what happens after actually happened before, it's, it's, it's a little unsure. But we know that she goes, it's dark, the stone was rolled away, And we know that the stone, the tomb was guarded, and those guys who are guarding that tomb, that their lives are at stake. There's no way they're gonna there's no way they're gonna allow a a band of fishermen and tax collectors or whoever it is to come in, overpower them, roll the stone and steal the body of Jesus Christ. It's just not happening. The second thing that points this out is John is very honest about their reaction to this, isn't he? And we sing this song every Easter. Mark Farrington sings, he's alive, One of, we love that song. And it tells the story of Peter, doesn't it? And Peter's a little, in the, in the song, I'm not saying this is, this is true, but we know, I think because of this and what Jesus says, In the song, Peter's like, I'm not too sure about this. I don't know how it's going to be. And I think the running, and the fact that later on Jesus is going to say, in another account, tell Peter too. He actually specifies to tell Peter. Why Peter? How did Jesus and Peter leave each other? The last time Peter saw Jesus, he was denying him. So, Peter's like running, but he's like, I don't know about this. John is like, full bore. I can't wait. I hope this is true. I hope he rose from the dead. And Peter is kind of like, I don't know. I want to point something out here. Christ at his appearing, being ashamed. And I know we don't think about that too much. But if you and I are living a life of denying Christ, maybe not outwardly like Peter did, but maybe we're denying him with our lives and maybe we're not not going out and preaching the gospel. Maybe we're a secret disciple. What is it going to be like when we see him? How are we going to run to Jesus when he comes back? We're going to be like, I don't know. I'm not too sure about this. I want to see him. I love him, but I've been denying him this whole time. John also talks about their lack of understanding. There's a word, it's called hagiography. Hagiography is the embellishment of making someone out to be a saint. John and the gospel writers, actually the whole New Testament, never makes these people out to be perfect, do they? Their their flaws are mentioned throughout. So if someone's writing, don't you want to make yourself look good? Don't you want to be like, yeah, you know, and, and I, I didn't even need to run to the tomb. I already knew what happened. My name is John, Jesus' favorite apostle. But he's like, well, we, we didn't understand. Right? We, we didn't understand what's happening. But then again, he goes into all of the details The word Saul is mentioned four times. John wants you to see something. He, He wants you to see what he saw and what he, or who he didn't see. So John doesn't go in initially. Peter goes in, they see the clothes lying there. John sees the clothes lying there. And then John says something he believes. And then they just go home. If you're going to start a huge legend or myth. Don't you think that's the right time to go ahead and start knocking on neighbors' doors and be like, hey, guess what? It just makes no sense whatsoever. Why are you going home? Well, they're trying to figure things out. Mary still thinks someone took them and put them in another tomb and she's about to find out otherwise. It makes It makes no sense. It makes no sense. That these guys are just making this up. But he, he, John wants you to see something. John wants you to see that when you believe in Jesus, your tomb is going to be empty too. John wants you to see that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, those grave clothes, the clothes of death, no longer hold you. John wants you to see that what is happening to Jesus is going to happen to those who put their trust in him. That's what John wants you to see. John wants you to see the resurrected Lord. He wants you to see it by faith now so that you see it in person later on. He wants you to see that death had no hold on him. And because of that, death is going to have no hold on you. You tell me What's the other answers? What else do we have? No religious narrative ends this way. No story ends this way. People die. They're buried. They're not rising again. What else do we have? What other hope do we have in life? God wants you to be utterly confident in this truth. So much so that we're willing to die for it. We're here today because we believe this. There are folks out there who don't. We need the courage and the confidence to be able to tell them. It's true. Our lives that have been changed by Jesus Christ can be their lives as well. In her book, The Year of Magical Thinking, author Joan Didion tries to make sense of her world after the death of her husband, John Gregory Doon. Didion marvels at the capacity of grief to derange the mind, that is, to throw its victims into a mode of irrationality. They cannot think and live as though the person they loved is really dead. Surely there has been some mistake of diagnosis or identity. She said, I was thinking like small children think as if my thoughts or wishes had the power to reverse the narrative or to change the outcome. One day, Didion was clearing the shelves of her husband's clothes, putting them in stacks to give away to thrift shops. But she couldn't bring herself to give away his shoes. There for a moment, she realized why. He would need his shoes if he was to return. Folks, there's only one person that can reverse that narrative. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus reverses the narrative death, burial means resurrection. Jesus Christ reverses the outcome. And Jesus Christ can do the same for you. You can trust in his death. You can trust in his burial. You can trust in his resurrection. You can trust in Jesus Christ. You can trust that when you die, you too will rise again. and You won't be needing your shoes at all. The waters of this life may be rough and stormy and cold. We may suffer and have a lot of pain. Heroes like George Washington died. Jesus Christ lives. And you can trust that Jesus will make sure you cross over from death to life. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the evidence that you've given us. For the testimony of John and all the witnesses. Thank you that you did not leave us without a witness. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to empower us. Lord, you know all the hearts and minds of everyone that is listening today. Lord, I pray that those who have believed in Christ... I pray that their faith is reassured. I pray that we go out with confidence in this world and proclaim this truth. And I pray for those who may be investigating Christianity. You're not afraid of their questions, their doubts, or their skepticism. Help them to see the truth in reality, Lord, and help them realize that apart from Jesus Christ and all that he has done, there is no hope in this world. That hope is found in him and in him alone. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.